Chapter 27 of Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by A Fine Voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 27 A Remembrance of the Dark Years. Nightmares of the Morning. The Civilian Reserve. The Volunteers. Domestic Life in Wartime. German Prisoners. Cipher to Our Prisoners. Sir John French. Empress Eugenie. Miracle Town. Armour. Our Tragedy. I can never forget, and our descendants can never imagine, the strange effect upon the mind which was produced by seeing the whole European fabric drifting to the edge of the chasm with absolute uncertainty as to what would happen when it toppled over. Military surprises, starvation, revolution, bankruptcy. No one knew what so unprecedented an episode would produce. It was all so evidently preventable, and yet it was so madly impossible to prevent it, for the Prussians had struck their monkey wrench into the machinery, and it would no longer work. As a rule, one has wild dreams and wakes to sanity, but on those mornings I left sanity when I woke and found myself in a world of nightmare dreams. On August the 4th, when war seemed assured, I had a note from Mr Goldsmith, a plumber in the village. There is a feeling in Crowborough that something should be done. This made me laugh at first, but presently I thought more seriously of it. After all, Crowborough was one of a thousand villages and we might be planning and acting for all. Therefore I had notices rapidly printed. I distributed them and put them at road corners, and the same evening, August 4th, we held a village meeting and started the volunteers, a force which soon grew to 200,000 men. The old volunteers had become extinct when the territorials had been organised some ten or twelve years before, but this new force which I conceived was to be a universal one, where every citizen, young and old, should be trained to arms. A great stockpot into which the nation could dip and draw its needs. We named ourselves the Civilian Reserve. No one, I reflected, could be the worse in such days for being able to drill and to shoot, or for being assembled in organised units. Government was too preoccupied to do anything, and we must show initiative for ourselves. After I had propounded my scheme, I signed the roll myself, and a 120 men did the same. Those were the first men in the volunteer force. Next evening we assembled at the drill hall, found out who could drill us, chose our non-commissioned officers, and set to work to form ourselves into an efficient company. Gillette, my American actor friend, had got stranded in England, and he was an interested spectator on this occasion. For the time being I took command. I had notified the War Office what we had done, and asked for official sanction. We were careful not to stand in the way of recruiting and determined to admit none who could reasonably join up at once. When the plan began to work, I wrote a description of our methods to the Times. As a consequence, I received requests for our rules and methods from 1,200 towns and villages. My secretary and I worked all day getting these off, and in many cases the inquiries led to the formation of similar companies. For about a fortnight all went well. We drilled every day, though we had no weapons. At the end of that time, there came a peremptory order from the War Office. 
all unauthorised bodies to be at once disbanded. Unquestioning and cheerful obedience is the first law in time of war. The company was on parade. I read out the telegram and then said, Right turn, dismiss. With this laconic order, the civilian reserve dissolved forever. But it had a speedy and glorious resurrection. There was a central body in London with some remote connection with the old volunteer force. Lord Desborough was chairman of this, and there could not have been a better man. The government put the formation of a volunteer force into the charge of this committee, to which I was elected. Mr Percy Harris was the secretary and showed great energy. I wrote to all the 1,200 applicants, referring them to this new centre, and we, the Crowborough body, now became the Crowborough Company of the 6th Royal Sussex Volunteer Regiment. That we were the first company in the country was shown by the Volunteer Gazette, when a prize was awarded for this distinction. Under its new shape, Captain St Quintin, who had been a soldier, became our leader, and Mr Gresson and Mr Druce, both of them famous cricketers, our lieutenants. Goldsmith was one of the sergeants, and I remained a full private for four years of war and an extra half year before we were demobilised. Our ranks fluctuated, for as the age limit of service gradually rose, we passed many men into the regular army, but we filled up with new recruits, and we were always about a hundred strong. Our drill and discipline were excellent, and when we received our rifles and bayonets, we soon learned to use them, nor were our marching powers contemptible, when one remembers that many of the men were in the fifties and even in the sixties. It was quite usual for us to march from Crowborough to Frant, with our rifles and equipment, to drill for a long hour in a heavy marshy field, and then to march back, singing all the way. It would be a good fourteen miles apart from the drill. I have very pleasant recollections of that long period of service. I learned to know my neighbours who stood in the same ranks, and I hope that they also learned to know me, as they could not otherwise. We had frequent camps, field days and inspections. On one occasion, 8,000 of us were assembled, and I am bound to say that I have never seen a finer body of men, though they were rather of the police constable than of the purely military type. The spirit was excellent, and I am sure that if we had had our chance, we should have done well in action. But it was hard to know how to get the chance, save in case of invasion. We were the remaining pivots of national life, and could only be spared for short periods, or chaos would follow. But a week or two in case of invasion was well within our powers, and such a chance would have been eagerly hailed. No doubt our presence enabled the government to strip the country of regular troops, far more than they would have dared otherwise to do. Twice, as Reppington's memoirs show, there was a question of embodying us for active service, but in each case the emergency passed. I found the life of a private soldier a delightful one. To be led and not to lead was most restful, and so long as one's thoughts were bounded by the polishing of one's buttons and buckles or the cleansing of one's rifle, one was quietly happy. In that long period I shared every phase of my companion's life. I have stood in the queue with my pannikin to get a welcome drink of beer, and I have slept in a bell tent on a summer night with a Sussex yokel blissfully snoring upon each of my shoulders. Sometimes amusing situations arose. I remember a new adjutant arriving and reviewing us. When he got opposite to me in his inspection, 
His eyes were caught by my South African medal. "'You have seen service, my man,' said he. "'Yes, sir,' I answered. He was a little cocky fellow who might well have been my son so far as age went. When he had passed down the line, he said to our CEO, St. Quinton, "'Who is that big fellow on the right of the rear rank?' "'That's Sherlock Holmes,' said CEO. "'Good Lord,' said the adjutant. "'I hope he does not mind my, my manning him. "'He just loves it,' said St. Quinton, which showed that he knew me. The other big factor which covered the whole period of the war, and some time after it, was my writing the history of the European campaign, which I published volume by volume under the name of The British Campaign in France and Flanders. My information was particularly good, for I had organised a very extensive correspondence with the generals, who were by no means anxious for self-advertisement, but were, on the other hand, very keen that the deeds of their particular troops should have full justice done them. In this way I was able to be the first to describe in print the full battle line with all the divisions, and even brigades in their correct places, from Mons onwards, to the last fight before the armistice. When I think what a fuss was made in the old days, when any correspondent got the account of a single colonial battle before his comrades, it is amazing to me that hardly a single paper ever commented, in reviewing these six successive volumes, upon the fact that I was really the only public source of supply of accurate and detailed information. I can only suppose that they could not believe it to be true. I had no help, but only hindrance from the war office, and everything I got was by means which were equally open to anyone else who took the trouble to organise them. Of course I was bowdlerized and blue-pencilled by censors, but still the fact remains that a dozen great battle lines were first charted by me. I have since read the official account so far as it has gone, and find little to change in my own, though the German and French records are now available to broaden the picture. For the moment, war literature is out of fashion, and my war history, which reflects all the passion and pain of those hard days, has never come into its own. I would reckon it the greatest and most undeserved literary disappointment of my life if I did not know that the end is not yet, and that it may mirror those great times to those who are to come. For the rest, I had a great deal of literary propaganda work to do. Once it was the Two Arms pamphlet, written in conjunction with Mr. Smith, soon to become Lord Birkenhead. Once again it was an appeal for our ill-used prisoners. Sometimes Norway, sometimes South America, always the United States needed treatment. As to my special missions, those I treat in separate chapters. There are many small but very important details of domestic life during the war which have never been properly described, and could indeed best be described by a woman, for they were usually an invasion of her department. Our descendants will never realise how we were all registered and docketed and rationed, so that the state could give the least to and take the most from each of us. One had food cards for practically everything, and the card only entitled you to get your meagre portion if it was to be had often it wasn't. I have been at a great lunch with half the grandees of the land and the Prime Minister to speak. The fare was Irish stew and rice pudding. What could man ask for more, but it will need another war to bring it round again? There was a pleasing uncertainty about all meals. There was always a sense of adventure, and a wonder whether you would really get something. It all made for appetite. Then there were the darkened windows, the sharp knocking of the police if the blind emitted any light. 
the vexatious summons for very small offences, the pulling down of every blind on the railway trains. At night, one never knew what evil bird was flying overhead, or what foul egg would be dropped. Once, as we sat in the theatre at Eastbourne, the whir of a zeppelin was heard above us. Half the audience slipped out. The lights were put out, and the play was finished with candles on the stage. When I was lecturing in London, the same thing happened, and I finished my lecture in the dark. Everyone found themselves doing strange things. I was not only a private in the volunteers, but I was a signaller, and I was for a time number one of a machine gun. My wife started a home for Belgian refugees in Crowborough. My son was a soldier, first, last, and all the time. My daughter Mary gave herself up altogether to public work, making shells at Vickers, and afterwards serving in a canteen. If I may quote a passage from my history, grotesque combinations resulted from the eagerness of all classes to lend a hand. An observer has described how a peer and a prize-fighter worked on the same bench at Woolwich, while titled ladies and young girls from cultured homes earned sixteen shillings a week at Erith, and boasted in the morning of the number of shell-cases which they had turned, and finished in their hours of night-shift. Truly it had become a national war. Of all its memories none will be stranger than those of the peaceful middle-aged civilians who were seen eagerly reading books of elementary drill in order to prepare themselves to meet the most famous soldiers in Europe, or of the schoolgirls and matrons who donned blue blouses and by their united work surpassed the output of the great death factories of Essen. Every house had its vegetable garden and every poor man his allotment, that we might at the worst exist until we could win our peace. The want of sugar and the limitation of tea were the worst privations. My wife, greatly helped by a faithful servant, Jakeman, did wonders in saving food, and we always lived well within our legal rations. This did not save us once from a police raid, because some tea sent us as a present from India had arrived. We had already distributed a good deal of it, however to our less fortunate neighbours, so we came well out of the matter. I have one singular memory in having to guard German prisoners at work. The volunteers had a turn at this work, and we spent the night at Lewis Prison. In the early morning, dark and misty, we were mustered, and five prisoners handed over to each of us. Mine worked on a farm some four miles from the town, and thither I had to march them, walking behind them with my rifle on my shoulder. When I had reached the lonely country road, I thought I would get into human touch with these poor slouching wretches, who were still in their stained grey uniforms, and wearing their service caps, with the bright red bands, which formed a wonderful advertisement of the excellence of German dyes. I halted them, drew them up, and asked them their nationality. Three were from Württemberg, and two from Prussia. I asked the Württembergers how long they had been prisoners. They said fourteen months. Then, said I, you were taken by the Canadians at Ypres, upon such and such a date. They were considerably astonished, since I was simply a second-line Tommy from their point of view. Of course I had the details of the war very clearly in my mind, and I knew that our one big hall of Württembergers had been on that occasion. To this day they must wonder how I knew. I shall not forget that day, for I stood for eight hours leaning on a rifle, amid drizzling rain, while in a little gap of the mist I watched those men loading carts with manure. I can answer for it that they were excellent workers, and they seemed civil, tractable fellows as well.
It was in 1915 that I managed to establish a secret correspondence with the British prisoners at Magdeburg. It was not very difficult to do, and I dare say others managed it as well as I. But it had the effect of cheering them by a little authentic news, for at that time they were only permitted to see German newspapers. It came about in this way. A dear friend of my wife's, Miss Lily Loder-Simmons, had a brother, Captain Willie Loder-Simmons, of the Wiltshires, who had been wounded and taken in the stand of the 7th Brigade on the evening before Le Cateau. He was an ingenious fellow and had written home a letter which passed the German censor, because it seemed to consist in the description of a farm. But when read carefully, it was clear that it was the conditions of himself and his comrades which he was discussing. It seemed to me that if a man used such an artifice, he would be prepared for a similar one in a letter from home. I took one of my books, therefore, and beginning with the third chapter, I guessed the censor would examine the first, I put little needle-pricks under the various printed letters until I had spelled out all the news. I then sent the book and also a letter. In the letter I said that the book was, I feared, rather slow in the opening, but that from chapter three onwards he might find it more interesting. That was as plain as I dared to make it. Loder Simmons missed the allusion altogether, but by good luck he showed the letter to Captain the Honourable Rupert Keppel of the Guards, who had been taken at Landresis. He smelled a rat, borrowed the book, and found my cipher. A message came back to his father, Lord Albemarle, to the effect that he hoped Conan Doyle would send some more books. This was sent on to me and of course showed me that it was all right. From that time onwards, every month or two, I pricked off my bulletin, and a long job it was. Finally I learned that the British papers were allowed for the prisoners, so that my budget was superfluous. However, for a year or two I think it was some solace to them, for I always made it as optimistic as truth would allow, or perhaps a little more so, just to get the average right. I had some dealings with General French, but only one interview with him. No one can help feeling a deep respect for the soldier who relieved Kimberley and headed off Cronier, or for the man who bore the first hard thrust of the German spear. My only interview with the General was at the Horse Guards, when he talked very clearly about the military position, though most of what he said as to the changes which modern tactics and heavy guns had caused was rather self-evident. Your problem always is how to pass the wire and the machine guns. There is no way round. What is the good of talking of invading Austria from the south? You will find the same wire and the same machine guns. We may as well face it in Flanders as anywhere else. This talk was shortly after Luz, when he had returned from the army and was at the head of home defence. If you want any point looked up for your history, mind you let me know and I will see that it is done. This sounded very nice to me, who was in a perpetual state of wanting to know. But as a matter of fact, I took it as a mere empty phrase, and so it proved when a week or two later I put it to the test. It was a simple question, but I never got any clear answer. One pleasing incident occurred in 1917 when a hull steam trawler, which had been named after me, under the able handling of Skipper Addy and Lieutenant McCabe of the Naval Reserve, had an action with a heavily armed modern submarine, the fight lasting for some hours. The Conan Doyle was acting as flagship of a little group of trawlers, and though their guns were pop-guns compared with that of the German, they so peppered him that he was either sunk or took flight. Anyhow, 
he vanished under the water. The little boat sent me its ship's bell as a souvenir of the exploit, and I sent some small remembrances in exchange. It was a fine exploit, and I was proud to be connected with it, even in so remote a way. I have in my war chapters expressed my admiration for General Haig. On one occasion I called upon Lady Haig, when she was administering some private hospital at Farnborough. It was, so far as I could understand, one wing of the Empress Eugenie's house, and the Empress invited me to lunch. There were present also Prince Victor Napoleon and his wife, who was, I think, a daughter of my old aversion, Leopold, King of the Belgians, and Overlord of the Congo. The Empress interested me deeply, a historical relic whom one would expect to study in old pictures and memoirs. Yet there she was, moving and talking before me. If Helen launched a thousand ships, Eugenie, by all accounts, did far more. Indeed, if the First German War was really from her inspiration, as Zola insists, she was at the root of all modern history. In spite of her great age, her face and figure preserved the lines of elegance and breed, the features clearly cut, the head set proudly upon the long neck. I glanced into her sitting-room as I passed the open door, and noticed that she was engaged upon an enormous jigsaw puzzle, a thousand pieces if there were one. Children's toys engaged the mind which once played with empires. There is surely something fatal in that Spanish blood, with its narrow fanatical religion and its masterful intolerance, magnificent but medieval, like the church which inspires it. She talked very freely with me, and in the most interesting manner. It was surprising to see how fresh her mind was, and what curious information she had at her command. She told me, for example, that tetanus in France depended very much upon what soil had got into the wound, while that in turn depended upon what manures had been used for the soil. Thus the percentage of tetanus cases would be quite different in a vine-growing district, and in one where ordinary crops were cultivated. She spoke seriously about the war, but was confident as to the ultimate result. This graceful, withered flower in its strange setting was one of the outstanding memories of those days. All sorts of queer odd jobs came to me as to many others in the war. I was, of course, prepared always to do absolutely anything which was suggested, though the suggestions were sometimes not very reasonable. One must not argue, but simply put one's whole weight, for what it is worth, into the scrum. Once I was directed to go up to Scotland and write up the great new munition works at Gretna, as the public needed reassurance upon the point. Pearson, the younger brother of Lord Cowdray, had built them, and they certainly deserved the name of Miracle Town, which I gave them in my article. The great difficulty always was to give our own people what they wanted, and yet not to give the Germans that which they wanted also. Winston Churchill's remarkable memoirs, the best in my opinion of all the war books, have shown how heavily this pressed in high quarters. His volume is certainly a wonderful vindication of his term of office, and it was a loss to the country when he left it. Churchill was very open to ideas, and sympathetic to those who were trying for some ideal. I had pondered much over armour for the troops, and he commented on it in an inspiring letter, in which he said that the bulletproof man and the torpedo-proof ship were our two great objects. I worked a good deal upon the question of shields, and wrote several articles about it in the Times and other papers, but the forces against us were strong. When I saw Mr. Montague on the subject at the Ministry of Munitions, he said, Sir Arthur, there is no use your arguing here. 
for there is no one in the building who does not know that you are right. The whole difficulty lies in making the soldiers accept your views. One has, of course, to be reasonable on the point, and to admit that there is a limit to what a man can carry, and that greater weight means slower movement, and therefore longer exposure. That is fully granted. But when the helmet in actual practice was found so useful, why should it not be supplemented by steel shoulder guards, since the helmet might actually guide the bullets down onto the shoulders? And why not a plastron over the heart? The vital points in a man's anatomy are not really so numerous. If many a life was saved by a buckle or a cigarette case, why should such protection not be systematised? And why in trench warfare should not strong breastplates be kept for the temporary use of any troops in the front line? I experimented with my own service rifle upon steel plates, and I was surprised to find how easy it was at twenty paces to turn a bullet. I am convinced that very many lives would have been saved had my views been adopted, and that the men in the hour of danger would have been only too glad to carry that part of their equipment. The tank, however, was a device which carried the armour and the men also, so that it was an extension of these ideas. We can never be grateful enough to the men who thought out the tank, for I have no doubt at all that this product of British brains and British labour won the war, which would otherwise have ended in a piece of mutual exhaustion. Churchill, Dane Court, Tritton, Swinton and Bernie Stern. These were in sober fact, divide the credit as you may, the men who played a very essential part in bringing down the giant. Our household suffered terribly in the war. The first of all was my wife's brother, Malcolm Leckie, of the Army Medical Service, whose gallantry was so conspicuous that he was awarded a posthumous DSO. While he was actually dying himself, with shrapnel in his chest, he had the wounded to his bedside and bandaged them. Then came the turn of Miss Loda Simons, who lived with us, and was a beloved member of the family. Three of her brothers were killed and the fourth wounded. Finally, on an evil day for us, she also passed on. Then two brave nephews, Alec Forbes and Oscar Hornung, went down with bullets through the brain. My gallant brother-in-law, Major Oldham, was killed by a sniper during his first days in the trenches. And then finally, just as all seemed over, I had a double blow. First it was my Kingsley, my only son by the first marriage, one of the grandest boys in body and soul that ever a father was blessed with. He had started the war as a private, worked up to an acting captaincy in the first Hampshires, and been very badly wounded on the Somme. It was pneumonia which slew him in London, and the same cursed plague carried off my soldier brother Innes, he who had shared my humble strivings at South Sea so many years ago. A career lay before him, for he was only forty and already adjutant-general of a corps, with the Legion of Honour and a great record of service. But he was called and he went like the hero he was. "'You do not complain at all, sir,' said the orderly. "'I am a soldier,' said the dying general." Thank God that I have since found that the gates are not shut, but only ajar, if one does show earnestness in the quest. Of all these that I have mentioned, there is but one from whom I have been unable to obtain clear proof of posthumous existence. End of chapter 27